0: Luke chapter 10. We'll start reading in verse 17. This is as the 72 or these people who were sent out on mission, they're returning from the mission Jesus sent them on. And here's what it says. The 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this, continue to look at this mission report of the disciples that Jesus sent out and the joy they returned with and the joy that Jesus reminds them is to supersede all their other joy and the joy even that now we see Jesus has in the mission that you have sent him on. Father, we pray. We pray that you would help us Understand your word, Father, as we understand the the fellowship that we're called to with the Trinity. The eternal joy that exists and love that exists between you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, as we begin to delve into that even a bit, that you would give us minds to understand. You are unfathomably deep in your glory and you are inexhaustible In your being, we cannot know you fully. But Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to know you as you present yourself in your word as clearly as we can. And that we would be radically changed by the knowledge of you. And what you've done in your son for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke starts the text that we're looking at this morning, verse 21 with the phrase, in that same hour. In that same hour. And if you weren't here last week, you might wonder, what is that same hour? What same hour? What Luke is doing is he's connecting this scene that he's about to tell you about back to the scene that immediately precedes it. And the scene that immediately precedes it is that the disciples, these 70 or 72, have returned from the mission Jesus sent them on with joy. They've returned from that mission with great joy because of the success that God has given them. And so you see that in verse 17, as the 72 returned with joy. Now mark that word because it's repeated three times. They return with joy. They return with joy because of the great success they've seen in ministry. Success God has given them. And Jesus told them while, that while this success in ministry is the work of God and is something to rejoice in, he's reminding them it's only a taste, only a small sample of what God will do. And it's nothing to be compared with the joy of having your name written in heaven. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Here's a comparative statement. He's comparing by the way of negation. It's nothing compared to this joy. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we see this rejoicing repeated again and again. The joy of God-given success in this life is worthless when compared to the joy of being known by God and remembered by God and loved by God and kept by God. And Jesus is reminding them of that. There's nothing that will induce more joy in you than seeing God and receiving God as your eternal reward. And Jesus is reminding them of that. And last week I told you after I talked all about that joy, I said this, that there's an even greater joy that Luke mentions here. Because I went through verse 20 last week and I said, as great as this joy is that we have of being known by God and loved by God and Remembered by him and kept by him. Having our names written in heaven. As great as that joy is, there's an even greater joy that's mentioned here. Luke has this theme of joy in the mission of God repeated three times. And, and here's the third one. It's the third one that's even the greatest. In that same hour, he, it's Jesus, rejoiced. Much stronger word, incidentally. It's this exultant exuberance. The stronger word than the rejoicing used prior to this. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That ought to stop you in your tracks. They come back rejoicing in the mission of God. Jesus says... What God has given you in ministry success is great, but it's nothing compared to the joy of having your names written in heaven. Rejoice in that. And then all of a sudden, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus bursts forth in joy, but what is he bursting forth in joy in? Or maybe I should ask this, rather, whom is he bursting forth in joy in? in the Holy Spirit. After which he goes on to say, I thank you, Father. And then, in verse 22, speaks of himself. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So he speaks of his joy in the Holy Spirit as he's thanking the Father, talking about himself as the one who reveals the Father. Here Jesus is bursting forth in joy in God. He's bursting forth in joy in himself. There is an eternal joy within the Trinity. You guys know that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an eternal joy within the Trinity in being God. God is the supreme object and subject of his own joy. There is no one greater. There is no majesty more glorious than God. And we don't often talk about joy as being an attribute or a characteristic of God, but perhaps we should. For we see Jesus Clearly rejoicing in God. God is rejoicing in his own being, and listen to this in his own mission. He is not a God, and I want to make this clear He is not a God who created people so that he could have somebody to love because he somehow needed that. He didn't need us. He did not need creatures to give him glory because somehow he lacked. Glory without it. He did not need creatures to bring him joy because he somehow lacked joy without them. He created because he wanted to share his joy in himself with his creatures. We don't add to his glory, we don't increase his joy. He has pure, eternal joy in himself. And he created in order to share that with his creation. There is eternal love and joy between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and God created us to share that love and joy with us. That's an incredible privilege. He doesn't need us. Thus, he didn't create us out of some selfish motive to fill some need. See, we often pursue loving others out of a selfish motive to fulfill our own need for people, don't we? We need other people. God doesn't need any of us. He created purely because he is love. And he enjoys himself. And he wanted to make creatures who see and enjoy his beauty and his glory. However, we as his creatures sinned. And we turned from him. We traded the glory of God for the reflections of him in his creation. We traded the joy and glory of the creator for the dull reflections of that joy and glory in the creation. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, this is what he said. We chose to make mud pies in the gutter when we could have been building sandcastles on beaches. But God's love caused him to plan. It caused him to go on mission to to seek reconciling us to himself. He chose to delight in and receive joy in saving us. He doesn't save us reluctantly. He doesn't pursue saving us reluctantly. It gives him great joy to pursue saving us and to save us. He chose to take those who fell short of his glory and who found joy in other things and through his son bring us to share in his glory and find our joy in him. And there are three specific areas really that of God's plan or God's mission that Jesus rejoices in in this text. Three specific areas of his mission that he rejoices in this text. And and one really application of it. Now here's the thing I'm going to tell you up front. I don't think I'm going to get to the third area of of what he's enjoying, nor the application. So I think I'm going to deal with the first two today. That's my guess. We'll see if I'm right. Three areas of God's mission in which Jesus rejoices. Here's the first one. Jesus' joy is in the Father's sovereign will to save all those whom the Father has given to him. Hear that? Jesus' joy is in the Father's sovereign will to save all those whom the Father has given to him. Look with me again at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, who does Jesus thank? He thanks the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. He says something about the Father. In other words, he begins by thanking the Father for his absolute monarchy. You're the Lord of heaven and earth, you're the absolute monarch, the sovereign. He begins by saying, I'm thanking God for his exhaustive and all-encompassing sovereignty over all things. There is not a random molecule in the universe, and Jesus knows it. And he thanks God for it. God is Lord and sovereign of everything. And Jesus expresses his joy in thanksgiving to his Father, his Father who is sovereign over all things. But Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's sovereignty in a particular regard here. It's a particular regard in which he's rejoicing in his sovereignty. Look at the next phrase Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So he's rejoicing in the Father's sovereignty in giving grace and mercy to whom he will, and in giving justice to whom he will. How do I get that idea? Well, there's a group. First, there's a group from whom the Father hides these things. He hides them from the wise and understanding. And there is a group to whom the Father reveals these things to the little children. So what are these things that are being revealed or being hidden? Well, the context is that the disciples... And those who received their message of the gospel have come to know that Jesus alone saves. And they have peace with God. And they've had their names written in heaven. That's the context. So it seems that these things refers to things pertaining to salvation. So Jesus is referring to a saving knowledge of himself. And when we know him, we know the Father. And it's only those who know Jesus who can know the Father. John fourteen six I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, the person of God who works through the Word to apply salvation to our hearts. And he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as he works out God's will, the Father's will. And here's the Father's will. It's twofold. First, the Father's gracious will is to hide something, it's to hide the saving knowledge of Jesus from the wise and understanding. It's the Father's gracious will to hide, to hide the saving knowledge of Jesus from the wise and understanding. Now, who, is, who are these wise and understanding? What does he mean by that? He means the proud. He means the self-righteous, the self-satisfied, those who think people who need Jesus are just weak-minded types of people. He's not saying categorically, and I want to be clear about this, he's not saying categorically that God's gracious will is to hide these things from the wise and understanding, i.e., the educated, the intelligent. And that his his will is to reveal these things to the stupid and unwise and uneducated. It's not what he's saying. The comparison is is, is not between wise and educated versus unwise and uneducated the comparison is between the wise and what understanding and who little children little children and what does little children mean it means little children that's who he's comparing these two this group to why because little children trust those in authority don't they little children dependently trust those in authority Little children are humble as to what they know of the truth. And so his point is a contrast between the proud and the humble. He's saying God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. He's saying that if you are smug and self-satisfied and proud, then the saving knowledge of Jesus is being hidden from you. For if you knew the great depths of your sin and wickedness against our holy God and if you knew the unreachably great heights of God's gracious love for us in Jesus, then you would at once see your need for him, and you would turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and your smugness and your pride, and you would fall on your face before him and cry out to him for salvation, and you would know the joy of him saving you. This is a work the Holy Spirit does in you in fulfillment of the plan of the Father to save us and the provision of Jesus in the cross and resurrection. And that's why Jesus also rejoices that it's the Father's gracious will to reveal saving knowledge of Jesus to the little children. The Father's gracious will is why you know Jesus. Do you guys know that? Why do you know Jesus? Because the Father's gracious will in revealing him to you. That's why you know him. Not because you're smarter, wiser, not because you made better choices, but because of the Father's gracious will in revealing him to you. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit in whom Jesus is rejoicing here, he brought everything to the table. you hear that? He brought everything to the table. You brought only your sin and your need, and you didn't even know you needed to do that until he revealed these things to you. Prior to that, you thought you could bring something else to the table. You thought you could add something. My good works outweigh my bad. My faith is really deep and sincere. It has some virtue attached to it. I bring something to the table. What is wrong with my neighbor? Why don't those people get it? Can't they see the truth? Why do I get it and they don't? No, they can't see the truth. They're blind and they're dead and they're deaf. And so are you until God's gracious will revealed the Son to you. You didn't bring anything in this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. It was truly God's sovereign grace that saved you. And Jesus is rejoicing in that. And that leads to the second area of God's plan or mission that Jesus rejoices in. And here's what it is. Jesus' joy is in the Father. His joy is in the Father giving him the mission to share his glory with those whom the Father's given him. Hear that? It's in the Father. His joy is in the Father giving him the mission to share his glory with those whom the Father's given him. Look at verse 22. All these things, or all things, sorry, all things have been handed over to me. By my Father. Jesus is rejoicing because his Father's sovereign rule has been handed over to him. He's been sent out on the mission of the Father, and he comes with the Father's sovereign authority. But what does he come with the Father's sovereign authority to do? What does he come to do? All things have been handed over to me. Okay? So I have the Father's sovereign authority, and what am I coming to do? And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He's come to reveal the Father to us. That's what He's come to do. He comes to make the Father known to us through Himself. John, in in the prologue, picks up this idea. In John chapter 1, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, this idea is picked up. we see that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known. Jesus is saying that it's his joy, it's his joy to sovereignly bring us into fellowship with the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Eternal life is to know God. Did you guys know that? It's not just to be forgiven for your sins, to be declared righteous. That's great, but there's there's an end for which the forgiveness of your sins and the declaration of your righteousness exists. Those are means. That's awesome. God forgave you for your sins. That's incredible. He declared us righteous. It's unspeakably glorious to know those things, but those things are so that we might know God, so that we can be in fellowship with the Trinity, Stop stop and consider that for a minute. So that we can be in fellowship with the Trinity and to share in the glory of God. And Jesus knows this. And he's rejoicing in his sovereign authority to graciously bring into salvation all those whom the Father has given him. Look at John chapter 17. You can keep your hand in Luke 10 if you want to. But look at John chapter 17 in verse 1. John chapter 17, is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. If you're not familiar with this passage, it's during the week of Jesus' passion, during the week of his crucifixion, he prays this prayer. And we get a peek into the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it's a pretty powerful passage as, in a sense, the veil of eternity is pulled back and we see the Father and the Son speaking to one another. We see the Son praying to His Father. And He says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. And He's speaking of the hour of His death. The hour has come. Glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. So Jesus, I have sovereign authority to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. And then he goes on and says something about it. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life. That you would know the Father and the Son. That you would be in fellowship with them. But why do I keep saying that you not only know God and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but you get to share in glory with them? I mean, aren't we told in Isaiah, if you guys are familiar with the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he talks often and more than once, talks about the fact that, that God does not give his glory to another. So heard that? So how could I possibly say, if Isaiah says God does not give his glory to another, how can I possibly then say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on mission to bring us into fellowship with them and to share their glory and their love and their joy? How can I say that if Isaiah said that the Father does not give his glory to another? Well, because you're wrong, Chad. That's how you can say it, right? That's one option. Keep your hand there in John 17 and look at the book of Isaiah. And I'll show you one of these passages just to confirm that I'm not making up that Isaiah says that. Isaiah chapter 42. It's about dead center of your Bible, pretty near it. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. And keep your hand in John 17. If you didn't, then grab it. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I. I am the Lord. It's the Lord speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Pretty clear, isn't it? I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. But what's interesting here is the context. Who is God speaking to in this passage when he says, my glory I give to no other? Who is he speaking to in this passage? Who is he addressing? Who is the Lord's audience here? Well, look at verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Speaking of the suffering servant, Jesus, isn't he? The Messiah, his Son. I have put my Spirit upon you. He will bring justice to you. Forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. These passages are picked up numerous times in the New Testament and said, these are Jesus is fulfilling these. Thus says God, verse 5, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Now the Lord's speaking, and he's addressing his son, this servant of Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Speaking to his son, Jesus. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. That's what Jesus was given for, wasn't he? The new covenant in his blood. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. And he continues to go on to to say to the Son, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. And the context here is no other excepting my Son. He's the one who receives my glory. I give it to no other but Him. It doesn't go to idols. It goes only to Him. And Jesus knows this and He picks up on it in John 17 when He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And verse 20 of John 17, look there, the Son receives His glory. Now look at John 17, return there in verse 20. And I want you to hear this passage because in the context of the fact the Father gives His glory to no other but the Son, the eternal glory which the Father and Son have with one another, the eternal love which with the Father and Son share with one another. I want you to hear this. I do not ask for these only. Jesus is praying Not just for the apostles, when he says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who does that include? Us. You ever want to hear a prayer of Jesus for you? You know, Jesus prayed for you. When he went to the cross, he didn't have some willy-nilly plan in mind that he hoped to God someone might believe in. He had people in mind for whose sins he was atoning. And he had you in mind as he's here praying for you believers. He's praying for those who will believe in me through the word of the apostles which we have here. He's praying for you. And what does he pray for you, believers? What does Jesus, the night when he's betrayed, what does he pray for you? Verse 21, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, now catch this, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Fellowship with Trinity. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, verse 22, that you have given me, I have given to them. Do you hear that? Isaiah 42, we as God's creatures should never be receiving God's glory. We have sinned against him. And the glory He gives to no other but His Son, His Son now gives to us. The glory I've given to them, or you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me, and catch this, and loved them, even as you loved me. You're stopped. The Father loves you even as he loves his son. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these Know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This ought to utterly stun you. It ought to absolutely stun you. Your mouth ought to be closed in awe of this. Simultaneously, It ought to cause you to rejoice in song. It should devastate you that you receive the glory of God. The glory is given to His Son. That you were loved by the Father in the same way the Son is. That you have been invited into fellowship with the triune God of all things. So here's what I'm driving at. Jesus is rejoicing in His sovereign Privilege in his sovereign privilege to share the love and glory and joy of God with all those whom the Father has graciously given to him. And if we believe in Jesus, if we know him, we are invited into fellowship with the Trinity. We are in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who've chosen joyfully chosen to make their home in us we get to see and taste and share the glory and love of the father and the son and the holy spirit we will forever come to know god better and as we do we will see and know his love and glory more which will mean that we will forever experience the eternal increase of joy the, internal, the eternal increase of joy in God is what Jesus is rejoicing to give us. What could be a better gift than that? I mean, who really cares at the end of the day about our money or our possessions or our reputations or our family? Who cares about your wife and kids, men? at the end of the day compared with this? When you get the eternal increase of Of joy in God as your reward, when you are loved by the Father as the Son is loved by the Father, when you share in the Father's glory. What can compare to that? I mean, that ought to shake you at your core, it ought to create a sense in awe of you. It ought to help you understand why Peter said that these things, salvation, are things in which the angels long to look. The angels who see the glory of God for all of their existence, who have seen him face to face, those angels are longing to look into our salvation because it blows them away in such a manner that when Jesus is born, the angels burst forth in a choir singing, Glory to God in the Highest. The God of all things, the king of the universe, the unapproachably holy, unimaginably powerful, unrelentingly loving, kind, and good God finds great joy in giving himself to you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. He gave you himself freely by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? In what other manner would it even be possible to receive such a gift? Someone might object, oh, but that kind of free gift, that kind of incredible promise that has no strings attached, that's just given freely, that kind of salvation, if you just give that out like that, if God really gives that what's the motivation for obedience or holiness or godliness then? If that's what you think, if you think Jesus came and lived perfectly and died for your sins and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever intercedes for you and sent his spirit and promised to come to consummate all things so that you could continue to live however you want, then you clearly don't have a grasp on what Jesus did for his people. Clearly don't have a grasp on it. I met a man last night at the fair who was drunk out of his mind. At a booth I was at and he came up and told me that he loves a particular church in town because he can come there hungover every Sunday and that's fine as long as he comes. And I thought, you clearly don't have a grasp on what Jesus has done. You clearly don't have a grasp on who the God is whom we worship and the privilege that it is to be in him. Jesus' great joy and mission is to bring the Trinity into fellowship with you. Nothing motivates holiness more than that. Nothing. Nothing motivates holiness more than the fact that I am united to and in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, shouldn't that alter the way you see your day when you wake up in the morning? You wake up in the morning as someone who is in eternal fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't it alter the way you see your vocation? You go to work and swing your hammer as someone who's in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Ought it not alter the way you see your entertainment? You watch that movie as someone who's in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Ought it not alter the way you see success or money or possessions? Doesn't it alter the way you see your suffering Yes, you're suffering, and suffering is painful now for a time. But Paul can say, I do, not, I do not consider the sufferings of this present world worth being compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Shouldn't it alter the way you see your family or your marriage? Yeah, your spouse is tough to deal with. You're in fellowship with the Trinity, though. Do you not think the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can help you? Do you not understand that your eternal joy is not in a good marriage or children who behave? But you have the great joy of being in fellowship with God himself. Shouldn't it alter the way that you pray? How about the way you sing? It ought to alter the way you sing or spend your Sundays. Should it alter the way you see and hear the word of God? Shouldn't it alter the reason you do anything that you do? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rejoice to make their home in you and to love you and to fellowship with you and to give you the privilege of the eternal increase of joy and to share their glory with you. That's what drives Luther to sing in the hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth, abideth still his kingdom is forever and it's there in his kingdom that you get the eternal increase of joy in him it ought to move you to sing how deep the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand and delight in and find great joy in the fact that because of what your son has done in his mission, this mission you were pleased to send him on, the mission he was pleased to carry out, the mission that your spirit continues to apply to us. Father, we pray that you'd give us great joy in the fact that that was fulfilled by you and that you have brought us into fellowship with your son. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who isn't looking to you, who doesn't know the joy of their salvation in you, Father, people who who may believe in you, but they just just don't know the joy of their salvation, we pray that you would capture their hearts with your love, that they would see the privilege they have of being in you. They would know that it gave you great joy to bring them into fellowship with you. They would sing from that, Lord. For all of us, that you would shake us at our core, that we would be very radically different people because of the fact that we are not just forgiven our sins and declared righteous, but we are adopted as your sons. We are united to you, and we're in fellowship with you. We are loved by you as your son is. Would we understand that and begin to get a taste of that and rejoice and live out of that as we grow into holiness as we look forward to the day when we will forever sing your praises, as we sing worthy as the Lamb who was slain. In Jesus' name, amen.